Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a lot to take in. Let me read it to you again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The good news of the Christian gospel, the good news that Jesus is, is that he is your life. There's a frequent misunderstanding that the Christian life is a commodity that God sort of pushes across a spiritual table as a gift that somebody could give you by taking it from, your, from their hands to yours. It's better than that. Colossians chapter 3 says Christ is our life. In other words, it's not just something that can be given, an object that can be exchanged. Paul's expressing it here. I'm no longer alive. Christ is now living in me. My old life, I died with him on the cross and through his resurrection, I'm now alive because he's in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live according to the faith of the Son of, in the Son of God who, here's the good news, loved me and gave himself for me. So whatever burden you walked in, here with today, and I know every single person, including the guy that's talking to you, every Sunday, every time we gather as a church family or in a small group, even if it's two people praying, one or both are carrying some kind of burden. And whether it's almost too much for you to bear, or it's just the daily sand in the gears, irritations and frustrations of daily life, please know, Christ loved you so much, he gave you himself. It's not just that you have life from him. He is your life. You have Jesus himself. He's the true vine. You're just a branch expressing his life. That's why we have eternal life, because we have Christ. It's a God's gift to us. So let's pray with that confidence. Let's ask God to open up our hearts to understand and believe how much he really loves us so that we can live accordingly. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us the way your word says that you do. Thank you for proving it in history by willingly going to the cross in our place. You had no sins there to take of your own. You took ours upon you. You paid the price for our sins, our rebellion, so that we could have your righteousness and your life instead. Thank you. Comfort our hearts. Give us hope for the future. Give us strength for this day and help us here, Lord, in Paul's reflection about himself and how you loved him, see our own responsibilities and privileges. In Christ's name I pray, amen. My pastor was also named Bruce. There's a running joke in our church for people who have been here for a long time that to become one of the secret bylaws of our church constitution says to become the senior pastor of uh, of the church, your name has to be Bruce. It's not true. It's just a wildly improbable coincidence. Uh, 
But Bruce Melton, my pastor, was a good, godly, and very smart and funny man. And the way you knew as his junior staff member, at least for me, the way I knew I was still in his good graces is if he was hitting me with one-liners and zingers. When he got quiet and polite, that's when I knew that somehow I had messed up and I got really, really nervous about how I was actually doing my job. Pastor Melton loved to uh, joke, and he had these great little one-line uh, sayings that taught me a great deal. Some of them resonate many decades earlier. One that has helped me greatly as a husband, a dad, and especially as a pastor is this simple saying, there's always one fact you don't know that changes the whole story. The specific advice was, when you're trying to help someone, keep listening for what they haven't told you and what they may not know themselves. There's one fact, if you can find one truth, it'll put everything in a whole new light and perspective. That was helpful. The other one was more self-diagnostic and spoke more to human nature. I've quoted him before on this because it's so true. He used to self-deprecatingly say, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. You identify with that saying? Would you say that about yourself? Chances are, if you say, that's not me at all, well, maybe self-awareness isn't your strongest gift. Let's just say that. Truth is, every human being on earth that has been born into frail, sinful humanity, aside from the perfection of Jesus Christ himself, is supremely self interested. If we're very, very self-aware, we can realize that even as other people are telling us heartbreaking things, we can't help but our minds quickly running to, how is this going to affect me? One of the great Christian authors who I read in seminary and who is still producing, rate, uh, still producing books and lectures at an alarming rate said in one of the most honest things that anyone has ever put in contemporary Christian media that he was at a family funeral eulogizing the dead. His dead loved one was in a casket behind him. His heartbroken family was right in front of him. And this distinguished author and professor was eulogizing and giving a tribute to the dead man. And in the middle of his own eulogy, he noticed how attentive people were being, how his words about the dead were moving the crowd sitting in front of him, and he thought to himself, boy, I'm good at this. And then he was heartbroken at the sudden realization of how selfish he actually was, that people were in tears in front of him, and a man was dead behind him, and he couldn't help but step back and admire his own work in delivering a eulogy. I'm glad he wrote that because it does speak to the human condition. It's absolutely true. Every single one of us is not much, but we constantly think about ourselves. In part, it's human nature. But human nature has been affected and broken and stained by sin, and if we're not very, very careful, our own self-interest will keep us from living as Christians. Social media hasn't helped. Social media has given every one of us, including me, a platform in which to display our lives and, generally speaking, what people are trying to do on social media through their posts and through their pictures is make other people think favorably about them. 
One of the great surprises of pastoring in the 21st century sometimes in meeting with people privately is to discover the gap between what I thought their life was and what it actually is. Because the smiling family has managed that smile for just a split second while the camera clicks. The beautiful vacation was actually a last-ditch attempt to save a marriage. The quiet little humble brags about the kids, all true. But the relationships are actually broken, and the parents are bragging about their kids who they love very much online in the hopes that the kids will be moved to reconcile with their parents. It's tricky. Paul's going to talk to us about it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're back on the journey with Paul through his second heartbroken letter he wrote the Corinthians. Let me remind you of where we've been if you've lost sight of it. Paul might have written his most personal letter and his most heartbroken letter when he wrote the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul has brought the gospel to this church, but false teachers and self-interested men who Paul will later call at the end of of this letter, he's going to somewhat sarcastically call the super-apostles, have come in with a really deceptive and attractive message. They've said, you know, you know how Paul's always one step ahead of a mob that's trying to kill him? You know how Paul's in and out of prison? You know how Paul limps and squints and can barely see and just what a physical mess he is because Paul had endured so many beatings, so much imprisonment, so much physical suffering in attempting to spread the word about Jesus that if he were here physically, you would probably find him physically hard to look at. And these false teachers, these self-styled religious competitors would say about Paul, you know, the reason that's happening to him is he's a phony. He's a grifter selfish. He's mentally unstable. He's in it for himself. He's all about himself. God does not approve of his message. He's not telling you the truth, and that's why the heavy hand of God's judgment is on Paul. Listen to us, not to Paul. He's going to lead you the wrong way. That's really at the heart of the whole letter Paul finds himself surprised, heartbroken even, that people to whom he has brought the message and the good news of Jesus, that Jesus died for them and gave them a whole new life, and someday for them their death on earth will represent their arrival in glory. These people of all people should have been grateful to Paul, should have been close to him, but they're not. And at the heart of the controversy is Paul's trouble with these false teachers who, Paul is going to explain, are really all about promoting themselves and not representing God at all. And it's in the Bible for our own sake. Our circumstances are different. This is a different church 2,000 years later in America rather than in, under the Roman Empire in Greece. But we have to consider this question, in an age of selfish hype, how do we represent God well? Because that's what Paul's going to tell us in this passage, is his job and our job. That those who have received the good news of Jesus are, the moment they meet Jesus, entrusted with the task of telling other people about him. This is the kind of good news that once it reaches you, it's intended for somebody else. In fact, 
The gospel of Jesus reached your life on its way to someone else. That's the way it's always been. Jesus came not to serve himself. He did not serve himself even to protect his own life. And those who bear his name, who are Christians, must do the hard daily work of dethroning ourselves and enthroning him. And that's not easy because at the heart of every human being is someone who says, I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. Let's get our thinking recalibrated by 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look with me in your Bibles, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has been explaining in the first half of the letter, which in the first half of this chapter, rather, which I shared with you two weeks ago, that his physical suffering is causing him, verse 2, to groan, to look forward to heaven, that what is mortal, he says in verse 4, will be swallowed up by life. He's looking forward, verse 8, to leaving this world and arriving safely at home in the eternal life. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And Paul says the only reason we are here is we have one goal. Verse 9, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I took two weeks to explain to you this undertaught Christian truth that salvation is entirely by grace, but someday when you are before Jesus, he will ask you and you will answer to him for the way you live the life he freely gave you. Your salvation is entirely at His expense. You contribute nothing except your humble receiving of the gift of God. But once you're in the family, once you have Christ's life, Christ will someday ask you what you did. Did you do things that were good or did you do things that were evil with the new life, the eternal life He gave you? On my Christian life, the clock has been running for decades. I had the grace of being placed in God's family when I turned away from my sins and trusted Christ as my Savior. When I was just a little kid, my dad did more than a good job of telling you all about my childhood last week. (laughs) But real faith, real love for Jesus, a real desire to know who He was came in all those years ago and all these years later. If God calls me to account tomorrow, I will answer for what I did with the life He gave me when I was just a boy. And so will you. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And now Paul is going to tell you what that has meant to him. He's going to tell you why he is so determined and how we can be sure that we're representing God well. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord we, what's, what's your Bible say there? We persuade others. Just sit with that for a second. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. The Christian life is a public life. Not all of us are extroverts. It took me a long time to realize that, but the light finally came on. Not everybody likes the mic. Not everybody enjoys the lights. But every single person who has Christ is called to represent Christ. 
Because we know who He is, and Paul here begins speaking about the fear of the Lord, and in a few verses I'm going to show you, he's going to be talking about the love of Christ. Everyone who knows who Jesus actually is, from the moment you trust Him, is called to represent Him. In fact, in verse 20, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. The minute you take the name and the life of Christ, you are a Christian. That literally means in the ancient world, in the biblical world, it was actually the origin of the term was an insult. Ah, these little Christs. It was an insult. It was meant as mockery. These people think they're Jesus. These people are little tiny copies of Jesus. When you have the confidence or the audacity, depending on who's looking at you, to say that heaven will be your home, that you have been saved by the grace of Christ, that God loved you so much He sent His Son to die for you, and His resurrection gave you the, own, the life of Christ Himself, you make those claims, you have that confidence, you represent Him. The question is whether you'll represent Him well, and human nature that is so self-interested makes that a real challenge. Paul here is going to show you in the paragraph that follows four hallmarks of people who represent God well, who, as it says in verse 11, know the fear of the Lord, and because they have the fear of the Lord, they persuade others. First of all, what's the fear of the Lord? That's kind of a scary term. I mean, fear is in the phrase. Of course, it's a scary term. What's it mean? Well, it's not a it's not the fear of a slave. The term fear the Lord is all through the Bible. In fact, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. What it means is, that if you know God, you genuinely personally know how genuinely awesome God is. Awesome's an overused term. Awesome can be a burrito. Okay? Bummed and awesome pretty much define the two ways we have of talking in life of California. Okay? Something's a bummer or something is awesome. Awesome literally means that it inspires awe, that it makes you say, wow, that you can't believe it. There's not too many places on earth, if you live in Southern California probably, that can still do that for you. But if you've ever visited one of the great natural wonders of the world, when you get out of the car and walk up to that spot and see the perspective of something like Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon, kind of step back. It's incredible. God is the kind of person, Paul says, who inspires a reverent awe in people. It's not a cringing slave-like fear. It's not someone huddled imagining that a cruel, capricious, arbitrary, mean God is going to smash them. No, it's someone who knows how holy and true and righteous and just and good God is, all of those things perfectly and all at the same time. And because God is like that, they are in awe of Him. And that's what motivates obedience. Not a cringing, I better do this or he's going to be angry and withdraw his love from me. But no, this is a God so good 
that though he is perfectly holy and just, and because he's holy and perfectly just, he put his son in my place. How could you not be in awe of a God like that? That's the sort of thing that Paul is driving at when he says, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, therefore knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Then he's going to address his critics, watch. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. In other words, these people saying that we're self-interested, unstable hucksters, God knows the truth, and I hope you do too. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearances and not about what is in the heart. That's the difference in verse 12 that Paul is marking between his ministry and the ministry of the so-called super-apostles. They're all about appearances. They were custom-made for Instagram. They only care about what they can show you so that you will be impressed with them. Paul says, we don't care about that. And we're not actually trying to get you to like us. We're not commending ourselves to you again. We're actually giving you a proper reason to be proud of us. We want you to know how to answer these critics. Our ministry comes out of the heart because we know how awesome God is. Here's a second criticism, verse 13. Remember, we're reading one side of the correspondence, and sometimes you have to imagine what the charges and the controversy and the gossip and the tea, if you will, was by reading one side of the correspondence. Verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. You get how Paul's clever answer there? Our critics say we're crazy. If they're right, we're crazy for God. We're crazy about Him. If we're in our right mind, it's all for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Notice this is a switch. In verse 11, Paul speaks of the fear of the Lord. In verse 14, he speaks about the love of Christ. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. That's the testimony of Jesus. This is the story of Jesus on the cross. Don't miss verse 15. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. In a self-interested age where people are inviting you to get as many people as possible to think well of you, how do you represent God well? Answer number one, since we know Jesus, we live for Him and not for ourselves. The entire point of Jesus dying for people and rising from the dead to give them His own life, according to Paul, is verse 15, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul is telling you that he feels twin motivations. There's two engines, if you will, driving Paul forward. The first is reverence what he calls the fear of the Lord because Paul knows every day what I was just explaining to you, that Paul and you, as well as I, will answer for our choices. 
You cannot earn your way to heaven, but once you have received the gift of Jesus that will surely deliver you to heaven, you will answer to Christ for the way you lived the life He gave you from the moment you trusted Him. Reverence, awe, worship, being so impressed with God that you care less and less about what happens to you. That's the hard part. The Christian life is a daily choice of whether you will follow Jesus, whether you will do what Jesus said and take up your cross every day and follow Him. Follow Jesus' word picture. A cross is an instrument of execution. Jesus says, if you'll really be my disciple, come die with me every day. Does that sound good to you, daily death? That's the exchange. He gives you eternal life and you in gratitude, not to earn it, in gratitude, in awe, in love, in obedience, you die to what you used to want to do, what you would have done if you didn't know Him. You die to your old self, you die to your self-will, and you put yourself in the hands of Jesus. Paul says the fear of the Lord does that for us, and he also says in verse 14, very important, look at it again, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Again in verse 15, he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So one engine is reverence, the second engine is love, the love of Christ. As I'm going to show you in this passage, as you already know, if you're already a Christian, you are more loved than you could ever begin to understand. Paul says elsewhere that no human eye has seen, no human ear has heard, no human heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. You're loved more than you know. I can read to you the very words of Scripture, but you will not fully be able to understand how much you're actually loved. If I explain it to you, I won't be able to understand it and believe it well enough to myself to convey to you the enormity of God's actual love for you. He died for you. Let's just bring that down to human terms. Do you have the confidence that anyone on earth would gladly, willingly die for you? Husbands and fathers, we like to think, and in our hearts, our internal thinking is, if it came to that, of course I would die for my children. Of course I would die for my wife. We'd like to think that. And there are many, many heroic stories of men and women dying for their spouse, their children, but then there's also the things that you see in the baseball stands sometimes. One of the many reasons I don't like to go to baseball games is sometimes true human nature is captured and broadcast to the entire country. I don't know if you saw this when a young man became very, very famous because a foul ball came flying into his section and he didn't think about it. It was very obviously just an instinctive reaction. He grabbed his girlfriend and placed her firmly in front of him <laughs> to protect himself from the foul tip. And hear the reactions? That's horrible. That happened, folks. He learned something about himself, and I think much more importantly, she learned something about him. <laughs> Never mind the bullets. This guy won't even take a baseball coming in our direction. I need an upgrade. I need a real man. 
I felt bad for him because it was so obviously an instinctive reaction. It was horrible. It was cowardly. It was all the bad things. But the truth is, very few people know what they will actually do themselves, and you know even less what someone else may do for you. Here's the greatest fact in human history. The Son of God lived, died, and rose again for your sake. He loved his life. He loved your life more than his own. And the call from Christ is, all debts are paid. All real danger is gone. Now that I have given you my life, live it, express it by following after me every day. That's why Paul says in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. It's not only that we're in awe of God, we are, but we are in awe of a God who loves us this deeply and this profoundly. This reverence and this fear, both of these things are equally true and both of them fuel real Christian living. And if either is lacking, you won't have much urgency to persuade anyone else to follow Jesus. If you don't think God is that awesome, you won't be very compelled to tell anyone about it. If you aren't sure that God loves you so much that He's actually removed all, all earthly risk from your life and that everything is eternally settled for you, you also won't be very urgent, very compelled to tell anyone about Jesus. Look in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. That's kind of a dense verse. Does anybody have any idea what it means? From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. What on earth does that mean? Well, again, this is the difficulty of reading ancient letters written to someone else. But let me tell you very simply, that's just Paul giving his testimony. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. Paul thought Jesus was an imposter. He thought the resurrection was a hoax. Paul once hated the very name of Jesus to say nothing of his message. Paul once dedicated himself to pursuing, imprisoning, and even helping kill people who believed in Jesus. What Paul's telling you in verse 16 is there was a time where we looked at Jesus from a purely earthly perspective. And my sincere belief was, that's just a guy. That's just another messianic false teacher come to agitate the people. It's a hoax. He's a fraud. He's a huckster. Best thing we can do for the sake of this nation that's already suffering enough under the Romans is get rid of him. That's, Paul says that's how we once regarded Christ. But we don't do that anymore. In fact, he says we regard no one according to the flesh. What does Paul mean? He means that Paul is nobody, is never looking again. Now that he knows Jesus, he's never looking at another person again the same way. He's looking at everybody now as someone who will live somewhere forever. He's looking at people with an eternal perspective. And the reason Paul is doing that is because of verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Paul's testimony is we once looked at every other person, including Jesus, from a merely earthly perspective. We don't do that anymore. We now look at people with eternal eyes. We see them as people who will live forever. Let me ask you, on the way to the glory of verse 17, which is the real point of those two little verses, do you look at people with an eternal perspective? Here's a simple way to find out. We all live in neighborhoods, right? Nobody came here from the moon. No monks and hermits among us. You all live around people. Do you ever wonder what goes on behind the doors of your neighbor's houses? Do you ever stop to think that someday the fire truck will come to each and every house? First responders, a coroner, grieving family will enter each and every home someday. Or leave, they'll leave that home to go to the scene of an accident or to a hospital bed or to a funeral home. The fatality rate in the human race remains 100%. No one makes it out alive. Every person on my block, including my house at the end of the cul-de-sac, we all have limited time. Paul says, ever since I met Jesus and knew that he died for me and gave me eternal life and that someday I'll answer to him for it, I've never lost sight of that fact. I don't have much time. Everybody is going to live somewhere forever. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In other words... The first thing that Paul would have us know as people who are going to represent God well is, most importantly, since we know Jesus, we should now live for Him. But number two, the reason we can do that is we know that God makes people brand new. Not improved, not reformed. Verse 17 says, new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Just in case you missed it, he said, the old has passed away. Behold, the, what's it say? The new has come. Paul's beginning with his own testimony. Paul is marveling. This is part of his awe of God that someone who hated the name of Jesus is now going to lose his life on earth telling other people about him. And the reason that happens is because of the great love of God. Look in verse 18, please. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. How did God bring people back to Himself? Paul explains. Not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. How did all of that happen? How do you have eternal life? Verse 21 tells you, if it's new to you, really pay attention. If I've lost you at any point, please hear the good news in verse 21. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me explain that to you as simply as I know how to do so. 
The reason people are not merely improved, not reformed, not made slightly better, but made entirely new with their old life forgiven, their old debts canceled is because of an exchange. This happens by an exchange that God makes with us. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus takes our sin, and in the place of our sin, we receive God's righteousness. Hear it again. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's not just that your debt is canceled and the slate is clean. No, a positive deposit has been made on your account. Your sin has been withdrawn and the righteousness of Christ has been credited. If this were a debt, not only would your debt be paid, you would be made unimaginably wealthy because you would be joined to the very life of God. If you had, if I can use a word picture, if you had a debit card that was linked to every dollar Bill Gates owns, would you ever worry about swiping that debit card anywhere? You'd go crazy at South Coast Plaza is what you'd do. You'd be like a cavalryman, charge. Okay. You'd be swiping that card everywhere. You'd never worry as maybe you've had to do. I certainly have. Check the balance. How we doing on that card? Do we have any money? No, not, not. To get paid on Friday. Don't do it now. Okay? Normal people with normal salaries sometimes have to do that. If, you're, if you have literally more money than is humanly possible to understand, if you've been credited with that wealth, with those riches, you don't worry about the purchase of anything. That's why God is not concerned about admitting you into heaven. He has given you the very life of His Son, Jesus has taken your sins to the cross because he had none of his own. He paid there for your sins. He took your place, took his sins on his body as if they were his fault. And in exchange, your debt was paid and his life was received. That's what gives people the confidence to represent God well. We no longer live for ourselves and we do that, number two, because God makes people brand new. And thirdly, we know, people know, who understand this passage, know that God has made sharing this good news our responsibility. Look with me, please, in verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. That's God's gift to you. And then look, it says, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Your salvation is His gift to you. Your salvation was entirely at God's expense. You don't earn your salvation, but do you, you do minister the good news of it. You now serve other people so that they will know it. That's why Paul says in verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. Really simple, church. Disciples make disciples. People who have been found by God find other people. Good news is always meant to be shared. That's Paul's appeal. And finally, he tells us he ends where he started. He ends with a humble, nearly heartbroken appeal back to them. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 1. 
Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Remember, this is a personal letter. This letter has some deep doctrinal teaching in it. I appreciate you engaging your heart and mind to understand the deep eternal truths that Paul's talking about here. But at the heart of the letter is a personal offense between the Corinthians and Paul. Paul has brought the good message to them. He has presented Christ to them. These people have the forgiveness of their sins because of Jesus, but the only reason they know about Jesus is because Paul is the one who told them. And now Paul says, listen, we're working together with God. And because we're working with God, we're making an appeal to you to not receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says, in a favorable time I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of, what's it say there? Salvation. Paul has been focused entirely on eternity. He's been looking at heaven and hell. He's been looking at the cost that God paid to make people brand new. But he ends this paragraph, he ends this thought going back to them. We're not hucksters. We suffer for your sake. If you think we're unstable and crazy, it's because we're crazy for God. If we've seen like we're in our right mind, it's for your sake. We haven't done this in our own self-interest. We've done this as those who have represented Jesus to you. We have suffered greatly for it. We know that the suffering will someday mean death to us, and that doesn't frighten us because we know that when we're absent from the body, we'll be present with the Lord. Our appeal right now is for you not to waste the grace that has saved you, to make good use of the gift of God's life to you. And what that means, and this is very congregational, this is very local, this is very much for us, we should always take broken relationships with other Christians seriously. Paul is pleading and appealing on the basis of the fact that he and the Corinthians are both in the family of God to understand that God is working through Paul and to believe what is right and true about him, to stop being impressed by appearances, to not be buffaloed and to not be swayed by ministries that are only interested in outward appearances that do not flow from the heart of sincere Christians. And the letter goes on, but you can tell if you keep reading it, Paul is deeply concerned that this relationship be reconciled, and what you and I need to take from it is this, if we will not be reconciled to other Christians, it may mean that you don't really know Christ himself. Our mandate, our mission to represent God well in the world is not only individual, it's corporate. And too many Christians have turned on each other. And we are behaving very poorly in public in this country to make anybody believe our claims about eternity. The way we love and bear with one another, the way we forgive the sins of each other because we have been so greatly forgiven by God is a key part of our relationship, of our witness to God. People who represent God well know that they live for Him. They know that they do that because God made them brand new. They know that this new life has been given to them as 
those who are now going to be ambassadors for Christ, and we're always pleading with people to not waste the brief life that they've been given from God. And Paul wraps that up with an Old Testament reference saying that the day of salvation is right now. And that's where I'll close as well. The time for you to turn to God as for your forgiveness is now. If you are, like Paul, a Christian and you are an ambassador in this dark world for him and you have not been living out that mission, the time to turn back to God and start representing him again is right now. If you have broken relationships with other Christians that have made your Christian life hard to enjoy and have dulled your witness for Christ, the time to turn to God with those burdens so that he can heal those relationships is right now. Why is this in the Bible? For two reasons. The easiest thing for any individual, any individual Christian in any congregation to do is to turn inward. These days that we're in as a church family are some of the sweetest in this church's history. This church has been here for nearly 60 years now. These are some of our best days. I obviously wasn't here for all of them, but these are good days. We have more people loving God. We have more people serving God. We have more people serving in this church and out in this community. We have more generous givers, more courageous, self-sacrificial volunteers than we've ever had. But the temptation to back off of our responsibility as ambassadors and turn back upon ourselves in self-interesting comfort precisely because things are going well is always going to be with us. My invitation to you is to not waste the brief life you've been given to serve Christ. A few days ago, a great pastor and great Christian scholar went to be with the Lord after a brutal battle with pancreatic cancer. His family gave witness from his deathbed that among his last words to them, was that because he had Christ, nothing would be lost and it would be entirely gain. That's true. The loss for a Christian in death all stays on this side. In just a few hours, I'm going to officiate a memorial service for a Christian. The people who will be sitting in front of me while I try to present the gospel and comfort them, I'm sure, will be heartbroken, but they will be heartbroken for themselves, not for their loved one. She's going to be with the Lord. By all accounts, though I didn't know her well, she lived her life fully for Christ with the life he gave her. She served him well. She's enjoying him. She's enjoying her reward. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians and my appeal to you as your fellow Christian and fellow, and fellow member of this church, as a pastor of this church, is to not waste the time that you've been given. To be reconciled to God through the gift of Jesus if you don't know him at all, and if you do know him, do not let strained relationships, worldly distractions, and selfish interests distract you from the enormous privilege you have of representing Christ for a brief time on this earth. Let's pray together.